Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm here with Anis Haddad. He is a global nomad and executive coach who has spent over 15 years coaching leaders of multinational companies across various industries. Anise is a certified transformational leadership facilitator and professional certified coach with a coaching philosophy that centres around the belief that change, transformation and reinvention give individuals the opportunity to grow and expand the definition of who they are. Anise is passionate about mindful and resilience leadership cultural change, personal transformation, self-improvement and team performance. Anise is also the author of The Business Fable, The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar. The book takes readers on a journey with a CEO as he unlocks his full potential in both business and life amidst a roller coaster of serendipitous turns and unexpected revelations. With a captivating plot and relatable characters, the eagle that drank hummingbird nectar will have you questioning your own assumptions about success and leave you eager to unleash your own potential. Anise, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jen. Thank you. <laughs> I can't wait to delve in to all about resilience. It feels like you have such a fresh, I was going to say approach, but really for me, it came across as a philosophy for how you coach. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about resilience. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'd actually never heard it described as a philosophy before. So I'm, I'm curious to see where our conversation goes. Well, I just found that reading your book is so many elements of Buddhism for me, because that's a religion that I know most about. I guess I'd, I wouldn't say that I know a lot about Hinduism, but it, there was so much spirituality in there, which perhaps I don't get on your website and other work. So I'm quite interested to see where that comes in for you professionally. But starting mm -hmm. off with resilience, what does that mean to you when I say the word resilience? So interestingly, I hardly use that word at all. Um, it's not in my book, but I, I realize it, it's very clear that there is a great deal of resilience that's involved in, in what I do. I think the reason that I've used well, I have given talks on resilience. I've done half-day seminars a few years ago, but I, I think it fell apart because it was kind of, there's always a negative sense to resilience. It's like reacting to something bad happening, and then it kind of goes away. It's a stealing. It, you become steeled um, to change. And my my attitude toward it has always been, something a lot more flowing. So I, I came to the point where the word resilience was just not resonating the same way. So I don't know what to call it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to rename yeah. the podcast. In turbulence. <laughs> turbulence. So what, what words do work for you when we're talking, I suppose, for me about getting through tough times, setbacks, when things don't go to plan? What are the words that you do reach for there? I guess living a, well, this is really going to sound trite, but living a full life as a human being, I, I know how stupid that sounds, just saying it, but there, there, there's something about realizing that 
in, and so in the professional space, I, I, I don't I don't work in in mental health areas and things like that where I need to have a very different view on what I'm sharing right now. But in the professional space, I think that resilience, the word resilience comes out of an environment of command and control um, where for decades we had management systems, organizational systems that were designed to um, push through, control things, control risk, move forward, and resilience was a way of dealing with that. And I think where we're at today is we're realizing the world just isn't like that at all. It probably never was. It certainly is not anymore. So it's not a command and control kind of approach to these setbacks and all that. It's more of a shift in attitude that that's just how life goes and you just go along with that. <laughs> <laughs> and and when did that shift happen? Has this been over, I mean, both, I suppose, as you're talking about the culture of work, but also in your own life as well? Like, When did that shift happen? Was it over a period of time? Is it because we have become more aware of the psychology? And yeah, what what happened there with the shift? Yeah, I, I, I think... I think we've become a lot more aware change and transformation. Just a few years ago, change management was like a one-time thing. Uh, organizations go through these big change management programs. They spend millions of dollars. They change a bunch of stuff. And, and the attitude was like, I just got to get through this. I need to push through, get through it, get my team to go through it. And resilience kind of comes up in that. And then, and then something shifted and we realized we're going through that change over and over and over again. It's not like a one-time thing anymore. So I, I, I think that transition was gradual. I think uh, COVID definitely it put the nail into that completely. <laughs> so going back to what you talk about into the living a full life, I mean, that sounds wonderful, but I guess it's also quite hard as well, isn't it? You, to live a full life, wow. we have to face up to some hard times and some hard changes. What does living yeah. a full life look like to you? Wow. Uh, I think there is a, well, actually, you mentioned Buddhism. I think it probably goes there, chasing, striving after the things we like and pushing away the things we don't like. That's the whole definition of, of suffering. And this approach that I'm talking about is kind of the, other side of that is the opposite of that is uh, accepting the stuff that we do like, accepting the stuff that we're pushing away, realizing that we do that as human beings and that it's part of being a human being. We naturally have that tendency. So, so it's a more relaxed form of, um, of moving through life. I, I use the example of holding on to things really tightly. Um, in, in, in several areas, like identity is a really big one for me. And you would have picked that up in my book. If you hold on to a current identity really hard and your, 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 your palms, your, your hands are gripped around it hard, it can break. But if you have kind of an open grasp on it, it can flow and change and your identity can shift. So resilience is kind of like, I want to hold my, I mean, I want to hold my identity really hard, push through this, and then keep my authentic <laughs> identity that's there. Relaxing that grip, you can move with it and grow and become a different person coming out the other side. It's the same thing on, 
experience and expertise, um, the stuff that we've spent decades building up, we hold on to them really strongly. And then at some point, as an older person, we start, start sounding like people that said, uh, say, uh, I remember this, I remember that. You should know when things were this way, that's how it should be. And, and we just don't adapt. So, Yeah, I found that bit really interesting. And maybe we, we're jumping ahead and we should summarize the book. But I found it really interesting that you did spend that time thinking um, about a beginner mind and that we're always learning because I think my immediate thought was but when I'm an expert when I know what I'm doing I make decisions very quickly everything seems quite easy and when I'm a beginner I'm doubting myself a lot more and unsure but I'm guessing that maybe I'm talking about that expertise and and not necessarily the wisdom like what what have I got wrong there exactly. in terms of it no, no, no. It, I don't, there's nothing, nothing is wrong at all. It, it, we, we hold on to it because it's so valuable. I mean, you spend a few decades developing expertise and experience and you can come up with answers much, much faster and all that. That's extremely valuable until the area that you're in has shifted so much and it's changing that you need to grow in new areas, then it gets in the way. There, there's a quote I love. By the, you may, I'm sure you've heard this before, by Julio Alala, he's the founder of uh, Ontological Coaching. And he says, um, knowledge is a love affair with answers and wisdom is a love affair with questions. Uh, and, and I think that's where uh, our expertise and everything, it's there to produce answers. And, and those are great and it's very valuable. But there is something that shifts when we start asking questions, um, and we we and we can say, "I don't know the answer." It's interesting how ChatGPT and things like that have come up, and all of a sudden, there's this new skill of knowing how to ask <laughs> questions of AI. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought about questions. it like that. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, and the quality of your questions um, define they determine the quality of the answers that you get back from AI. Um, one of the things that I, 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 I got from your work was that I think I've always thought that I have to be comfortable, get to some kind of comfort with having things that I don't know or comfort with the uncomfortable. But actually, you use the word joy quite a lot in your book and this joy of the wisdom and joy of, I think you said at one point, conflict we could use that to recognize the joy of being alive and I just thought that goes beyond just being comfortable with it and and is does that take more work to find joy in not having the answers I think that goes back to uh the work that Viktor Frankl did on on meaning and purpose there's a lot there that is simply realizing that a lot of these things are just part of being human and when you start noticing it like that, you start going, hey, that just means I'm still alive. I'm still <laughs> moving forward. Things are still happening. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to remember that because it's easy to go into a downward spiral and everything. But in those moments, um, it is there is some real fundamental empathy that comes through that. And maybe if I can smile and say, at least I'm alive to have these 
existential crises or whatever's going on that'll kind of get me out of that moment and, and make me smile if nothing else so there's value in that uh, so I feel like we've jumped ahead because there was so much that I wanted to talk about your your work and your philosophy but tell us a little bit about the the work that you do and then maybe we'll talk about your book okay so um, the work I do now uh, since around 15 years I'm an executive coach for C-suite executives, so CEOs and their top teams. Um, originally, I was a programmer, and then I became an entrepreneur, built a payment software company in France, grew it to 30 countries, sold it in 2007, just before the global financial crisis, and discovered that what I liked better than computers was people, so that it sent me off in a completely new direction. Um, and now this is all I do is executive coaching, leadership facilitation. Generally, it's generally it's to support top teams in becoming more aligned as a team, uh, building more trust amongst themselves, um, dealing with change, taking a sense of full ownership. Um, of the organization and expanding that beyond the organization, stakeholders and stuff like that. So, And it felt like in your book, your main character when he was exploring coaching had some doubts about the value of coaching. And I guess that goes back to those labels that we were talking about and identity. And I just yeah, wondered exactly. how, much, how much was biographical in that? Yep. <laughs> I think that there was... Uh, um, they're around 20, 30% of the anecdotes that are real anecdotes that either I experienced and lived through or people that I've coached. Many of those stories are real. The, the way it's put together into a plot and all that and the surprise ending and everything, all of that is storytelling. Um, the emotions of going through that transition after being a CEO and rebuilding, being a beginner again, and all the messiness that goes with that because you're no longer looked up to as an authority in your area. You just won out of tens of thousands. Uh, all of those things were real. Oh, okay. Um, that's, so, that's good to yes. know because <laughs> I feel like I definitely went through some of that when I stopped being a lawyer and I've moved on to other things. And and I suppose as part of me that that knew I had to let go of this identity and in that very kind of Buddhist philosophy that you you explain um but it was still quite hard and I'm quite pleased to hear that I'm not alone in that yeah how long ago were you a lawyer so how was, long ago was that yeah that was 2019 I was a lawyer for 14 years and I got very specialized in and going back to that like I said, being an expert, going into places where you knew you had all the answers. It's a really, yeah. for me, it's a really safe feeling. And yeah. then to, I worked in an office for nearly a year and then I was self-employed doing other work. And it's really hard, I find, to start it over again. And I think one of the things that has helped me is every time I start over again, I'm thinking I'm not starting with nothing. You bring all that experience with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, but it doesn't always feel like that when you're the new person in an office or career. Yeah. I think that's beautifully put. And it's that process of determining what it is that you're bringing with you mm. that I think has tremendous value. Because after a while, you're, you're distilling 
your real value somewhere. And that's a constant process. I think that's really beautiful. Mm. And so just talk a little bit. Can you just give us an introduction, an uh, overview of your book and, and what that is with the intriguing title? So it's a story of uh, a man in Singapore, 50 years old, uh, uh, former tech CEO who's going through transition. Um, his wife passed away a few years earlier. His daughter has grown and has left home. So he's by himself now and uh, trying to figure out who he is going forward. Um, so it uh, he, he, he stumbles on a pamphlet, a manuscript in, a, in an Indian restaurant and starts reading through it. It's something on mindful leadership and he, it just really speaks to him. And he starts living through it and becomes uh, interested in identifying who the author of this manuscript is um, and can't figure who it is, chases them down and tries to find who they are until at the very end uh, that's revealed. Um, in that process, it, 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 it's, a, it's a fictional journey that we go through later in life through the kind of change that you're describing, letting go, uh, letting go of the identity of being a former tech CEO, letting go of the identity of being a dad with his daughter gone now, a different kind of dad now that she's grown up in a way. Um, and uh, uh, learning in what ways he has lived certain parts of his life in not an ideal manner. Um, so it touches on areas of codependency and leadership, empowerment in the sense of, of a kind of a limited false sense of empowerment versus really full, robust empowerment. Yeah, a whole variety of things that he discovers as he, as he goes along. And, and why did you decide to write it in that fictional way? Because you could mm. have alternatively, I guess, written quite a snappy coaching book, Five Steps to Joyful Living or something like that. Why yeah. was it the fictional aspect that you, you chose? I had written uh, two books 20-something years ago in, in the payment technology space back when I was running my company. And they were more in that traditional uh, business format. This time around, I wanted to write a book on this new journey or, or, or what has been new the last 15 years. And I wrote a first version that was in that old style, but it felt very boring to me. It <laughs> felt dull and boring. So I threw it away and I, and I rewrote it through this uh, lens of, of fiction. Essentially, it was to, it was to, well, there's something that the coach, uh, the, 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 the protagonist's coach and best friend, Misha, keeps telling him that he's teaching. He, he, he needs to coach, not teach. And she would point out to him, he's saying something, he said, you see, she'd say, see, you're teaching again. And that was, that was real. I had people telling me that when I was learning. And it's that same process of can I write a book that shares viscerally that transformation so that people can experience the emotion of it and um and and perhaps vicariously transform um through watching 
a, a character transforming rather than just simply telling people here's what to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One thing that struck me from the book was that I don't think it would just be useful for leaders, CEOs. Like there's so much in there that we have or I feel outside of work, whether that's um, I was thinking particularly then like the lack of confidence, imposter syndrome in certain things. And yeah. I just wondered if you've written books in that very nonfiction style before, did you ever have any doubts or feeling like an imposter when you were writing this fiction oh, book? Oh, yeah. It all, well, I, 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 it's yeah, so all helpful when I hear that other people have these doubts. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do oh, with them? Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, for me, imposter syndrome is just a sign that you're stepping outside your comfort zone and you're trying on some new identity. And it's a natural, I see it when I'm coaching someone and they say I'm struggling with imposter syndrome, my, my reaction is great. <laughs> you're in that new space. Um, it is uncomfortable. But you're you're you have the courage to be in that new space because there's some value you see in going down that route, and you're trying it on. You always have the option to take that new identity off, like your jacket. And <laughs> yeah, you're doing that. I, I like this idea of that we're just putting a coat on and we can always put it back in the wardrobe if, yeah. <laughs> if it gets a bit yeah, scary. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, imposter syndrome is simply feedback that yes, you are pushing yourself outside your comfort zone and growing. And tell me a little bit, like we talked about the start of the philosophy side of it. I found it a very spiritual book in that sense, which I haven't got from other coaching or kind of similar leadership books. So how did that come in? Do you see it as spiritual? And, and if so, like, where does that come from in your work? Hmm. Well, I, I do practice mindfulness. Um, I practice mindfulness for a number of years now. Um, I see it as somewhat spiritual, if spiritual is, is meaning um, the secular side of Buddhism, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Western mindfulness is, is a very secularized form of Buddhism. It doesn't mm. have all of the belief systems in it and all that kind of thing. From that perspective, yeah, that's, that's throughout the book, this notion of letting go, um, accepting things. Um, accepting how we are and pushing through and knowing that we are beings that love to explore new places, explore new ways of being, expand, chase after things. We love doing that. I do find it a paradox that I, I know I love doing those and I always feel great when I am doing those, but there's also part of my mind that tells me not to do that because it's really uncomfortable and stay safe. Yeah. And so I do find it, yeah difficult at times to embrace that growth yeah. and those new experiences that's a it, it, it's those it's one of those contradictory areas that are just filled with, uh, with but instead of, of worrying about it I'm just gonna go well then the joy is that I'm alive to feel these yeah, contradictions I'm in, I'm in that space <laughs> I'm in that space where there's conflict there's discomfort um I'm stretching myself. I shouldn't be. Well, yeah, I should. I want to. I don't want. It's a it's a fascinating place to be. <laughs> and the first step, like the the first point from the path that you talk about in your book, seemed to be about this kind of call to change and an invitation yeah. to change. And I was quite interested in that because sometimes the changes come around very externally. I think you called it like an external shot where 
you know, a redundancy or bereavement or something huge has happened and I feel like I'm forced to change. But I just wondered whether there was other signs that weren't so obvious. Like sometimes I hear people or I've had that feeling that there could be more, that I'm just kind of in a bit of a routine, in a bit of a rut. And so, yeah, how, how broad is the call to change and, and how can we know that, that, that change is coming or that we could find yeah. the courage for change? If you notice the characters, even in the first chapter, every single character has a call to change, but they're all different. You have uh, Rajiv, the, uh, the, the manager of the textile factory in India that had uh, um, fatalities, who's struggling with uh, a sense of safety. And he wasn't, he's not in the book looking for change, saying, hey, I want to I want to change myself, become a different person. It all came about because the looking externally at solutions was no longer enough. He had done everything. They, they'd spent tons of money on external solutions. And he finally had to go inward and say, how do I need to change? Um, and it was difficult. Um, so each one of them has a different kind of calling to change. The main protagonist, um, Aiden, his calling to change was just people telling him, come on, we know you're miserable. You're not, you're not admitting to it. <laughs> you're just sitting here <laughs> stewing in your juices. <laughs> and was that and part says, of the oh, biographical one? Or was that completely fictional? <laughs> oh, no, no, there's, there's some, there's a good bit of biographical in there that's mixed in. Yeah. <laughs> the other one was the lady who's, um, daughter was going through depression and she finally the, the 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 executive finally decided that she needed to look inward and and be vulnerable because nothing else was really working so yeah it's a whole there are all kinds of things that push us into it. i don't think we do it for fun <laughs> i don't know i think some people quite like the excitement and the adrenaline and the risk of it but yeah that, that's yeah, definitely think, not my personality yeah. type um, yeah, I think. I mean, you must have taken some big risks. I feel like entrepreneurs must have risks um, that they've taken. And so, yeah, how do you deal with the, the making those choices and and deal with doubts or or whatever else comes up for you? So I have. Um, so my wife's a lawyer. We've had this conversation before. Um, I, I, see, I see working as an employee of a big company as inherently far more risky <laughs> than being an entrepreneur. Oh, really? What are the risks in, in a nice, safe job? <laughs> well, you have one boss that you can piss off and screw things up pretty easily and pretty quickly. Um, whereas as an entrepreneur, it's a much wider, uh, you can make lots of mistakes. You obviously make tons of mistakes as an entrepreneur, but it's less, uh, dependent on just one person making some decision that impacts you. Um, so I, it's, it's just a different perspective, but I, I, yeah, I, I personally see that environment riskier. <laughs> 
scarier to me. <laughs> I mean, I lasted about 10 months at a, an office-based job and then self-employed life is, is definitely for me too. So I do understand that. Yeah. Yeah. But I do have that sometimes when things do feel a little bit risky or overwhelming, then I do think I wish I could just be in a normal nine to five job sometimes. I was having yeah. a conversation with a friend over the weekend and we both agreed that it's it sounds good when you're in those moments of chaos and doubt, but actually we, we know that that's not for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You said there that you, yeah. you've obviously made lots of mistakes um, as an entrepreneur. And I mean, for me, that sounds really scary and really stressful. Like how, <laughs> how can we learn to approach failure mistakes in a non-scary way? Mm. Non-scary, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, non-stressful, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, even stress. The whole definition of courage is taking action despite the fear and the stress that's there. So we as human beings, we're, we're, we're wired for courage. And, and it, 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 it shows up in all of us when, when it's needed. So it, it's more, rather than a question of how to, how to avoid the, the, the scariness and, the doubt and, and those fears, it's more a question of, is it worth the courage to move forward on this path in spite of having that big lump in the throat and the fear of uh, the bank account going dry and letting down loved ones and not being able to play, pay the rent or the mortgage. In spite of all that, is the courage to move forward still worth it? I'm letting that sink in. So yeah, and I think in the past, I've, I felt like the goal is to not fear, feel the fear and not have those doubts and be fully committed with what I'm doing all the time without any doubts. But I, I'm guessing that's unrealistic. And if we're going to grow, we're going to have have a little brain telling us stay safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's where coaching is a powerful tool. Because when you speak to a friend that knows you really well about those moments, quite often the friend wants to help fix the problem and make that fear go away. Whereas with a coach, that shouldn't be happening. It should be more a process of introspection, um, looking at it, seeing what are the times in my life that I've decided to go through that fear and still take those steps forward in spite of the fear and what came out of it and how did that, I do that last time. It's, it's a whole different discussion. Yeah. I, I liked, there was, I think you were using it as a quote, but that you said it was about when we celebrate the success and failures equally. And I found that really, wow, that really felt hard to do. It's almost like, yeah, of course we can celebrate the successes, but the failures is quite shameful yeah. and, th and then maybe if we're lucky we can learn from them or move on but you're saying celebrate yeah. them as well yeah I remember when, it, when I was in my 20s working in Italy um, I had my one of my best friend at the time uh, was so proud of his human 
failures. And he was a senior executive, even at the time, he was a little bit older than me. And it was just like, yeah, that's how I am. It's just, it, it just struck me that there are some cultures that are just more comfortable with uh, their, their, um, their weaknesses, their human sides and everything. So that poem that you just mentioned, I wrote that poem, it's called When. Oh, I didn't realize you'd and, written it. Oh, that's lovely. And it's, and it's, it's integrated throughout the mm. book. And it's inspired in part by Rudyard Kipling's If. Um, and, and on Wimbledon, I always love, there's that, that, that quote above the entrance to Wimbledon. If you can look at triumph and what's the other one? Disaster or something mm. as imposters. As they're, they're, both, they're both fake. <laughs> uh, neither of them are real. Um, so it's a similar kind of spirit to that. Yes. And just but rather than I went with when, because I believe that we do do that. It's not that it's not <laughs> binary that you're either a person who does or you're not. I think we all do. Oh, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> and and just going back to the vulnerability you mentioned about um well, we, I think we were talking about one of the characters in the book showing vulnerability. But I just wondered, again, like where has, has there been a shift in culture? Is it OK for leaders to be vulnerable? Because I feel like there always was this idea that those at the top are tough and that's not showing weaknesses, not showing vulnerability. Um, like what's your experience been of, of being vulnerable in terms of your work? That has, that has changed so much over the last 10 years or so. Um, there is a huge amount of research and writing and articles and books um, on vulnerability in, in top leadership. Um, often, so authentic leadership now, the term authentic leadership now is very much related to this vulnerability. It's just uh, there's some big changes that have happened over the last 10 years that um, have brought that really into the forefront and what's, uh, and what does that look like? Sorry, what does that look like, the leaders showing vulnerability? Saying things um, like, look, I don't have all the answers. Let's figure this out together. Uh, I don't know how this, I don't know how we're going to solve this. I don't know how we're going to get out of this problem. Um, but I do have faith in us as a team. We can figure it out. I need your help. I need your support in doing this. Those kinds of things are, 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 are immensely more common today than they would have been a few years ago. And one of the things, a theme as well, was about relinquishing control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. goes back to you saying like this, this old idea of resilience is about having that, that control, command and control. But... What are the benefits, sell it to me, of, of giving up that control? Okay, in a corporate environment. Well, yeah, but I feel like a lot of what we're saying, even just that showing vulnerability and things, yeah. that works with everything. But yeah, in a corporate environment. Yeah, yeah. So I, I use a scale. So for me, that's very linked to the term empowerment. And we use that term a lot. It's becoming a bit of a, a cliche Um I use a scale from one to 10 on what is it you're delegating 
when I'm when I'm coaching leaders. One is you're delegating tasks. Ten is you're delegating results and authority and outcomes. Where are you on that scale? And um, people more in a more of a management role tend to be a little bit to the left um, in the lower numbers of the scale because they're really focusing on tasks and they're saying, here's the task I need done this much by this time on this date. Uh, this is what the delivery looks like and, and here's how you do it and here's how you put it all together. That's a, that's a very hands-on command and control kind of environment and you need that for certain types of work. Um, the much more complex work that we do today is more at the higher ends. It's giving someone an outcome and especially the authority to bring that outcome to fruition and, and delegating it in that way. So the, the textbook, def the dictionary definition of empowerment is delegating authority. And when it's described like that, what you're giving away is control. Because mm. you're, you're, you're telling the person, I'm not going to control how you do it. But this is what, this is the result. And you have full authority to get the res that result. And it's difficult. So sometimes people will go back and I, I have them go and get feedback, asking their people, how, where would you see me on this scale from one to 10? And sometimes people, the people would respond back. Uh, when you're giving me something to do, you're delegating authority. You're probably at an eight or nine. But when you come and check up on me every single day on how I'm progressing on that and how I'm doing that, it brings it down to a two. So then executives can learn how they can behave differently so that they're letting go of that control and, and, they're, and they're delegating the full authority on getting something done. I was just thinking of parenting when you were saying that as well and how, how it relates. Perfect. To <laughs> you, yeah, it, it is. It is. It's a... Uh, um, I've found that a lot of executives, senior executives tend to have kids in their teens. Board members tend to have kids that are in their 20s and older. And there's something in that parenting energy that comes through in our in our work. When we've got, how old, you've got kids? I've got stepkids that are teenagers. Okay. How old as teenagers? 18 and 16. Okay. So you're coming to the end of that. The, the energy around that is very much like KPIs. And you do this, you'll get that. You don't do this, you won't get that. We'll, 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 it's all very much based on the, their behavior. And a lot of work environments feel a lot like that. Um, when I point that out to people, they'll go, oh my God, I didn't realize, yeah, I'm treating my people as teenagers, as kids. And people will say, why can't they grow up? Why do they have to act like children? Why don't they? They'll say that. And it's showing a subconscious link that's coming through because that parenting energy that they're spending at home is so rich and, 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 and so consuming. Once they realize that they're able to let go of it and say, I, I don't want to do that anymore. I, these are adults that are working with me. They're not teenagers. <laughs> One thing that I found interesting as well about that control was you talking about goals. And we've often 
I've had coaches say, oh, it's important to have goals. And I feel like I'm fed a narrative on on social media that I need to set these goals and do everything to achieve them. And I just have to keep working and I can do whatever I set my mind to. But you had a discussion in the book about how goals can be held on to kind of too stiffly and it doesn't allow us to adapt and and be lighter with them and I just wondered how where's the balance (laughs) should I (laughs) how do I know that I'm not holding on to things too tightly and missing other opportunities or other ways of doing things (laughs) yeah I don't know I think that yeah I really it's um again one of those paradoxes there oh okay Uh, there's no easy answer No, there's no easy answer. There's some goals you're going to want to hold on to really, really hard. Uh, uh, high cholesterol, getting that down uh, because of some issue or something, you're going to work really hard on that goal and watch those numbers and really try to get that under control. Others are kind of, uh, it's like blinders on a horse. It just fixes the mind to where you can't see the other stuff that might might be more attractive so yeah there's no easy way to do that what what are the themes that come up in your work when you're working with people are they are they what we've been discussing or is there anything else that you see time and time again yeah the bigger themes i'm seeing now actually i have another book coming out in january i've just finished the manuscript um called Soaring Beyond Boundaries. It's it's a more business type book, but it's filled with little fictional stories. It follows four executives. So it's a, it's a it, it links to the Eagle of the Drank Hummingbird Nectar, but the Eagle of the Drank Hummingbird Nectar is in the first person uh, perspective on the transformation that person was going through. Here it's looking at a variety of executives and what they're going through. And some of the same stories come through in this book. The main, one of the big topics that I'm seeing now in, in the corporate space is uh, how do you expand the sense of ownership beyond just the function that I've been given to manage or the business unit that I've been given to manage or the company that I'm managing, how do you expand the sense of ownership so that you have a much more networked kind of a leadership approach as opposed to hierarchical top-down? I think that's a big topic that's coming out because change is so fast now and there's so much ambiguity this hierarchical command and control doesn't work. So a lot of companies are trying to explore how do they have that kind of, very much like the question you just asked, how do I have goals and stuff, but at the same time, stay open and fluid enough (laughs) that I don't miss the big picture. I'm glad it's not just me wrestling with this. (laughs) No, I think think it's because the world we're living in is just so much more Mm. complex now. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Things can change so quickly. I mean, we saw that in many ways with COVID, didn't we? What What were you? Where were you um, during that first period of COVID, and, and how did it affect you? I was in Singapore. Mm. We were We were all in Singapore, and uh, everything closed down like everywhere else. Um, we were in a beautiful house with a garden that was just a seven minute walk from. 
a jungle reserve park called Makrichi here. So that became my my hiking and running area. Even during the very height of COVID, when you couldn't venture more than a couple kilometers from your home, that was still mine. So um, I saw there are lots of wild boar that had come out. There are the piglet, what do you call the piglets? Makassin in French. I don't even know the word in English. The baby boars are out, the monkeys everywhere. It was just a it was just a, a, a an amazing time. I'm imagining it now. It sounds really, really beautiful. Like how you mentioned about hiking and running, like how do you look after yourself? You sound incredibly busy writing books, speaking doing everything all over the world like what what are your fundamentals for looking after yourself i have to go to the gym well i meditate every day i go to the gym three times a week um i walk a lot in singapore we don't have a car it's all public transportation so you automatically you can do your ten thousand steps easily because you're going in and out of subways and buses and stuff like that um i ran during covid but um had some, I, I, I'm not really running right now. It's these other activities. Those are fundamental. I, so speaking of resilience, I, I couldn't function properly if I didn't have those activities, the very regular regimented <laughs> activities. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me about how to have different days every day, be changed, be fine, be fluid. No, no, but you're no, like, I no, I need these. <laughs> no, I need my... I need my routine. <laughs> <laughs> and and the my the meditation that you you mentioned, like what what does your practice look like? And also when did that develop? That developed gradually over the last uh, fifteen years. And it really became a daily practice maybe ten years ago. Um, it's a very simple practice, just a just a breath uh, meditation. Um just watching the breath and noticing thoughts, um, just, just your typical mindfulness. Um, I had a few other practices that were through. Well, um, also like walking mindfulness, mindful walking kind of practices occasionally. Um, loving kindness. So metta, um, bringing people up in your mind uh, may you be well may you be happy may you be peaceful may you be loved i've coached people executives on practicing that with some of their enemies at work because they we all have those <laughs> and and that's been transformative to be able to look at someone and uh, imagine that they are full human beings that have uh, desires and dreams and fears and failures. Um, it's surprising how often I'll ask someone who's struggling with an interpersonal conflict with either a subordinate or a team, a, a, a peer or a higher up, and I'll ask them, well, what do they want? What's their desire and their goal? And it's surprising how often we don't know. Just like, oh wow, what a great question! I need to figure out what what keeps them awake at night. <laughs> yes, they're not just out to annoy us for the sake of it. <laughs> exactly, they're not these two dimensional <laughs> artificial intelligence beings that are just there to make our lives miserable. <laughs> 
Oh, the stories that we tell each uh, tell ourselves. But but yeah. when you're you're bringing those practices into your work, um, and I'm not sure whether you're directly saying it, but like for example, in the book you talk about the um, detaching from the illusion of self, and for me these are very much the kind of things that I've heard in spiritual and Buddhist practices. Um, yeah. How does that how does that come across? How does that land when you're working with executives and and doing the work that you do? Is is this is there some scepticism that this is something they should be practicing or or has it been welcomed as just another part of the toolbox? Um, I only bring it up in situations where it would be something that's already bubbling up there. Right. So not like teaching people to do these things. It's more someone brings something up and I'll go, oh, great, you're already doing this here here's something that would just take that into a new space and it would link that to what you're, you were talking about five minutes ago. In those situations, people are very, very open to it because it's already, it's naturally emerging. Mm. My work as a coach is to facilitate that emergence of the natural wisdom within the person. You're not teaching. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Older executives really like that. Younger ones tell me, just tell me what to do. <laughs> That's pretty much what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard work, isn't it? I, I find it. I, I'm busy and I've got a lot of demands. And then to have, like, for example, the, the work that you were talking about in the book about our limiting beliefs. I mean, some of these were going back to childhood. And and it really yeah. took a lot of challenge and and actually, I guess, maybe not time as in length of time, but it took some dedication to work out what was Effort. happening. And yeah, yeah, are we looking for a quick fix where we can just read a book and you give me the five things I need to do and then everything's <laughs> fine? <laughs> or do, is well, this where we yeah, embrace right. the joy of having all this work to do? <laughs> yeah. Clearly, I like writing books and it feels like there's some value in books. So... And I clearly I'm playing with I'm, I'm I'm exploring that. So there's something in that storytelling that I'm hoping people get value from. Um, but it is work, and and I guess I guess that's why I wrote it as a novel. So it doesn't feel like I'm telling people here's a bunch of stuff to do, and I go away and do it, and then come back and read the next <laughs> chapter. You're right um, because I wouldn't I I probably wouldn't do it if I'm honest, or if you gave me jour exactly, yeah. journal prompts. <laughs> I love. I love reading journal prompts, but I never sit down and actually do yeah. that. <laughs> Show me your journal prompts. Oh, I like those. <laughs> One day I'll do them. <laughs> One day I'll do them. Let me just collect them. Yeah. Yes. So it was, I, I think it's a really accessible way in. Of It definitely made me think without realizing that I was doing work. <laughs> that was the idea. And I've heard that from a number of people. And that feels, I feel, I feel good about that. That if you feel like you're getting something out of it by watching someone, I mean that's storytelling, isn't it? Mm. We, I mean, we. This is this is. It's hardwired into our brains. We love stories. Yeah, and I think it gives us that connection that there's somebody else going through these same. Yeah. Thoughts that's as us. Very true. Mm. Yeah, I'm not alone. Yes. Oh, thank you so much for 
sharing everything that we've been through today i found it really interesting and i found your book really thought-provoking as well so thank you for bringing that i'm looking forward to the next one when when's that out in january i think in january yeah i finished the manuscript it's gone through a number of edits it's gone through several versions um and uh, i think by january it'll be published that's good and what else Uh, i'm just a goal Published in January. <laughs> Look, don't be too rigid <laughs> with your goal. <laughs> no, I'm going to hold on to this one rigidly. It's got to be out by January. Okay. January. Okay. Some deadlines we should <laughs> or die. <laughs> and what else is coming up? I mean, you use the word reinvention, and I guess maybe who knows what other life <laughs> careers that you're going to have. But what else do you have coming up? Right now, this feels like the big one. It feels like something that. <clears throat> can keep me going a few decades. Um, <laughs> Don't get too hung up on that identity. <laughs> I, uh, I think it's, uh, I mean, I see it, I see it evolving. Mm. But, um, it's a direction that I get a lot of uh, energy from. It, it, uh, it, it truly energizes me. Ah, and I guess that's something good to follow. That's definitely a theme coming up along the podcasts and other work is find what gives you joy and that energy and and you can't really yeah. go wrong. Yeah, then it's not work. <laughs> I feel like work. I think I have the same answer. If somebody asks what I do for a job, I'm like, it's evolving. <laughs> yeah. That's a short I mean, answer. <laughs> it, yeah, but it's true. There's no way it's not evolving. And that's not scary. That's joyful and exciting. That's that's my reframe. It's a lie. It's a lie. <laughs> oh, Anise, thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk thank to you. you. Jen. It was lovely meeting you, lovely talking to you today. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.